The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No mai hoki mai kia the fold e mihi nei ko Duncan Grieve talking uh, My guest today is Michael Donaldson, who I actually have some like personal history with. He was the sports editor of the Sunday Star Times, which was where I did my internship as a as a uh, student journalist, and I've got nothing but the fondest memories of of that. It was it's, it's incredibly you know this was in I think. 2000, 2005, and it's very intimidating walking into a newsroom when you're uh, when you're from, you know, when like they they were just big, they're very fast paced. Everyone knows exactly what they're doing. A lot of people are sort of don't have a lot of time for the latest uh, sort of you know wet behind the ears intern who's who's walked in through the door. But Michael was incredibly kind. You know, I had the experience of reporting out stories that made its way into a publication I had read very religiously. The Sunday Star Times was, at the time, my favourite newspaper in the country and still would be, you know, that and the Weekend Herald are the ones that I would sort of really, you know, uh, struggle without. Um, so it just was was an incredible and, and very galvanising and validating experience and so I'll, I'll be forever grateful to him for that. And... So we, we we talk about his time, you know, he started in, in sports journalism in the late 80s and, and ran through the, the sort of glory days and, and golden age of, of print journalism, of newspaper journalism, um, and then decided in the mid-2000s, uh, sorry, mid-2010s when it started to really kind of get shaken and pulled apart by the rise of digital, decided to go out on his own. And what he went out to do is, I think, really interesting. It's the he basically started editing and then ultimately bought a publication called The Pursuit of Hoppiness, which is now both a a free print publication that you can pick up at pubs, but also a Substack newsletter, which I really strongly recommend subscribing to if you're into craft beer. That's basically what he has built. You know his his post newspaper career around is an interest in craft beer, which you know st- stretched back his whole adult life before it was even called craft beer. Uh, and I think what he has done with it is a really interesting and quite sort of a very well formulated example of a kind of a, a niche media business, like a community oriented media business that has been that they. There's a kind of a big truism about media in recent times where there was a, a scale era where everyone was just taking the gusher of traffic that came from Facebook in the sort of early mid-2010s and was trying to build these enormous kind of unicorn-valued media businesses like the likes of BuzzFeed and and uh, Vice. You know, BuzzFeed is now worth 
less than half of what NZME is on the uh, on the Nasdaq, and Vice is if it's not bankrupt, it's it's sort of hovering around there. And the the big trend has been actually you want you don't want the biggest possible audience. You want one that is really meaningfully engaged and wrapped around a a particular subject. And the pursuit of happiness is a is a version of that. It's really well executed. The the newsletter keeps you current, tells you what you know, some good beers to buy and, and keeps you across the kind of news within the industry. And then the the publication has a bit more of that sort of lean back quality to it. So um yeah, we just sort of discussed his his journey from from sports journalism in the eighties to to running this um really, really well thought out uh media business within craft beer now. So uh yeah, um it, it was I, I really, really enjoyed uh, talking with Michael and, and kind of thinking about or hearing about the evolution of, of his career and the context of the evolution of the media business through that time. Uh, one quick plug, if, if I may, uh, I have just in the last couple of weeks taken over editing Rec Room, which is our sort of pop culture newsletter. Invariably, the way I do it, it, it uh, has crossover with the kind of material which uh, I talk about on the fold. So if you're a fan of this podcast, uh would love it if you headed head to the newsletter section of the spinoff. It's very easy to navigate there and uh, and subscribe to Rec Room uh, and just because I think that the the way I want to to make it work is, is have it have Rec Room the fold and and my writing sort of talk to to one another and and have you know the, a sort of a sense of community around that. So yeah, go go and check out Rec Room on the spinoff. And also, uh, please subscribe and uh, check a rating on this podcast if you enjoy it. That stuff really helps keep it uh, in charts and, and helps the, the distribution through platforms like Spotify so uh, and, and, and Apple Podcasts. So that's all from me. Please enjoy Michael Donaldson, the owner and editor of The Pursuit of Happiness on The Fold. Nakwe, Michael, welcome to The Fold. Thank you, Duncan. It's a real pleasure to be here, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, it's cool. It's good to good to see you again. You were, you know, as I said before, you were, um, you know, my my absolute first uh, <laughs> editor in, in journalism proper. Um, so no, it's really great great to catch up. I wondered if you could could go back to the very start for you and what was it about newspapers that that sort of drew you in? Sure, sure. I will say that you were um, the best internal work experience person we ever had, Sunday Star Time Sport, <laughs> you and Tony Street. So there you go. Oh, that's yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> she uh, was very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. Uh, you're the best uh, person I ever interned for. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, go back to the start, crikey. So we're talking uh, 1988 and uh, I had just finished a phys ed degree down in Otago and one of my classmates had been a journalist um, and had worked at the Waikato Times and she went from graduating in phys ed school to getting a job then in sport at the Otago Daily Times. Uh, she's called Tony Bruce. Um, you may have heard of her. She's sort of, she's a professor at Auckland University now Um writes a lot about sport and media. Well, that's her whole area. And um, anyway, Tony very briefly worked at the ODT and got a scholarship to go to uh, the States and basically turned around and said, you could do this job, you know, 
you know sport, you can write, um, and dragged me into the Otago Daily Times and uh, introduced me to the deputy sports editor and said, this is Michael, he's going to do my job for a while. And uh, they, I don't know whether they were just overwhelmed by the bolshiness of it. Um, it was literally a, a stopgap because uh, they were about to hire a person called Richard Bock. And, oh, wow. Uh, yes. And and, so much talent. I know. <laughs> and there was a period there, and I, th- this is what I've, in my mind, it's different probably to how the reality was, but as I understood it, Tony was leaving in, let's say, August to go to the States, and Richard couldn't start till maybe the Christmas or something like that, you know. And there was a gap to fill, and I did it um, in an incredibly unconvincing manner. But <laughs> well, clearly, some, something stuck. Well, do you do you want to d- sort of describe your experience of it? How, how what was the what was the newsroom like back then? Because this is you know, ODT is not not the biggest by in in the country by, no. by any means back then. But yeah, but. so literally, I guess they hired me as a stringer would be the best description. I wasn't staff. Um, I worked weekends covering a hodgepodge of sports, uh, rugby league, can you believe it, in Dunedin, um, hockey, basketball, um, the sort of minor sports, I guess you'd say. And um, I typed up copy on my sister-in-law had a typewriter and I got some copy paper from the ODT and every Sunday I would type up my stuff and I would walk in there and hand it to the chief sports sub, who was a guy called Barry Stewart, who subsequently went on to be the editor of the ODT. And Barry was amazing. He just would go, can't say that, can't say that, let's no, wrong, and would cross out my copy in front of me and rewrite it and probably retyped it later on, (laughs) or somebody did. And so as a, as a newsroom experience, it was very, very analog, first of all. Everything was on paper and typewriters, so everything's very manual and physical. Um, the editing process was done by hand um, at that stage anyway. There were conversations about what you were doing and how you were doing it. But for me, it was a total education, and it was at the end of that period that I went, okay, I'm not going to have a career in phys ed or whatever, wherever I was going. Um, I think I was going to start a master's at that point and I applied to do journalism school and I applied all around the country, got in at Canterbury and yeah, everything went from there really and uh, did did all the hunting around for different jobs but my first real job um, was at the press in Christchurch and uh, and I think that's where I really, really, really fell in love with newspapers because the old press building had the printing press in the basement. And so you were there with, you could go down and have the noise and have the papers coming off the press straight off it, you know, and the smell and the ink and the noise and the touch, the texture of the paper, all that kind of stuff is quite a, I like the visceral nature of it. It was great. It was a really um, cool experience. Yeah. What, what do you consider the sort of zenith of your career in print? Or when, when did it feel like it was most kind of working, I mm. suppose? Do you know what I mean? Like, like I, I'm trying to imagine, like, your, your career spans sort of, you know, late, in, in print spans late 80s to, I think, about 2014, maybe 2016. Yeah, 2014, I think I left 
Fairfax stuff. So, so yeah. you know, basically from the internet was not mm. even imagined to, yes. to it was really starting to eat, eat into to the business. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of trying to think of, of when when the thing felt like it was at its apex for you personally. Yeah, okay. I In an era, it would have been roughly 2007 to 2010. In that period, I was a sports editor at the Sunday Star Times and we'd we'd had a Lions tour in 2005 and that was, you know, actually probably the period stretches back to there, selling 220,000 papers on a Sunday. Like it was... That's extraordinary, it right? was It was absolutely extraordinary and the Lions tour was massive and then out of that, for, for me, I, I covered that tour and the subsequent years probably leading up to... Uh, the Beijing Olympics in 2008. I mean, it was extraordinary what we did every Saturday to get out not just a sports section but a newspaper. And this was a broadsheet. Like, like yeah, I think huge, people, yeah. you can't sort of – now that everything apart from the Weekend Herald is, yeah. is largely compact – the, 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 just the volume of stories. Like the Sunday Star Times sports section would probably have as many stories in it as, you know, it's half a newspaper now. Oh, like there was just yeah. so much well, content. Well, I, I can remember that in those days, the sports section itself was 24 broadsheet pages. Um, if we went down to 22, we were grumbling like, well, there's not enough space. <laughs> and So that's 48 pages of a compact, which would be, you know. That's about the size of the Wednesday Herald. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was phenomenal, and you've got to remember at the same time the Sunday News was churning out chunky, probably sixty page tabloid. Yeah, the Herald on Sunday as well. Um, I think Truth was still happening, mm. um, and a lot of that was happening out of that one building up the road in uh, Eden Terrace. Um, Sunday Star Times, Sunday News, Truth, Turf Digest, Friday Flash—they were all in that building. <laughs> it's not a big building, but <laughs> yeah, no. there's a lot coming out. Yeah, yeah. But the the sheer volume of content, like we, we would have three pages of racing um, alone, which was phenomenal. And I mean, some weeks it was like you didn't know how you were going to fill it. Um, but there were two pages of just um, results. You know, we had every sports result from around the world. Um it was, and it was a huge team of people. Um, yeah, how, of them, how big? Were, how many people were in your just in sports? Yeah, so I have to count them on my. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, maybe there were f- five or six full timers, and then maybe up to three casuals um, on a Saturday. Um, yeah, it was uh, maybe ten people working on on a Saturday plus stringers. Um, and the, it was quite a lot to manage the the, the copy flow mm-hmm. coming in and that production. Um, and I think deadline was I'm trying to remember maybe ten o'clock for first edition. So every rugby game was finishing kind right. of right on deadline, and it was a it was so exciting. Everything was really exciting and vibrant, and we were meaningful. I think. In that time, people still cared about what was in their Sunday paper. You know, you would drive around on Sunday listening to, um, you know, ZB and uh, what was the guy's name? Murray, Murray Deaker. Deaker. And the voice he, of God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But he would analyze the sports sections in the Sunday paper and tell you who'd done the best ones, you know, and who had the good stories. And it was, it was phenomenal how much uh, 
interest there was in it, you know, and and how ridiculously um, important we felt to an extent, and and not important like ego, but to get it right. Oh, so it was mission, right? Yeah. You, yeah, you know, like it felt like this 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 crucial part of of society was. Mm documenting it in in real time yeah 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 and and yeah and that at the end of that era was when the first kind of digital um creep sort of started to come in and none of us really understood it even though we all used the internet we couldn't comprehend why anyone would want you know circa 2010 now why anyone would want to go and read this stuff on a computer um, because it was so tactile and it was all about, you know, opening up and discovering yeah. stuff as you went through the paper. Um, yeah, and it's just such a different experience, yeah. Yeah, it is. I think that that, that sense of of sort of trust and, and the editorial decision-making, the hierarchy the, the, of, of the way that stories were presented and, and the, the, the audience sort of subliminally says, well, well, understands like the if it's on the front page, it really matters. Yes. Whereas yeah. now, the 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 way that it's sorted is is and, and served is very different. So so when it starts to chip away, how does that manifest within the the newsrooms? Mm. Well, the, my memory of it, and um, I'm going back away now, is there was just no idea of how to navigate to the place we are now. Um, I always remember um, Paul Thompson, who was towards the end of my career there, was, you know... Um, Editor-in-chief. Editor-in-chief or? or chief executive or just the boss of yeah. Fairfax um, slash stuff. And when he moved to Radio New Zealand, giving that example of the, you know, standing on the the burning platform of an oil rig in the North Atlantic, you know, and... If you jump, you're doomed. If you stay, you're doomed. And that was the the real sense at the time of we've got this newspaper. It's still a good newspaper, um, even though it had slowly been gutted. Advertising had fallen away. Um, the, the people in power at stuff are not the same ones now, so it's not a critique of them. But um, the, the Fairfax at the time, and um, they didn't know what to do with the Sunday paper. Um, I think they knew that it had to change. They knew that they had to go digital. There was just a whole lot of, we know we have to do stuff, but we don't know what it is we have to do. Um, and that's that whole, you know, um, known, unknown kind of thing. It's like, well, what's the mechanism by which you get from here to here? And that was Paul's analogy of the, you know, it's the devil in the deep blue sea, any dilemma like that. And to Sinead Boucher's, absolute credit and the team around her when she took charge it was like no we're going here and I think at the time looking back that was all anyone wanted was a vision leadership decision (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, exactly and it's very hard when you're uh, if you like the troops on the ground and we went through a period uh there in that Auckland newsroom it was the Sunday Star Times and it was a massive newsroom you know, and there was some great people working there and slowly it became the Auckland Bureau of Stuff. And, and then some of what they did was put out a paper on a Sunday. Yes. It was the, uh, yeah, it was a thing that you did at the end of the week. 
um, as a newsroom, there were certain people still focused on the newspaper and I was one of them. Um, but that team shrank and shrank and shrank and you had this fight for resource and fight for relevance. Yeah. Like, which so that, is that, more important, you know, us or them? <laughs> well, and, that, and that's kind of what, I, you know, it is a bit of like like demand side, supply side, you know, like like was it the the audience energy slow drift uh, to digital and from there to mass fragmentation or was it the sort of the, the steady drip of a reduction in resource? But obviously some part of, and it's obviously both, mm. but, but um, some, somewhere along that line it must have lost a bit of its romance and kind of admission for you mm. uh, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, I can think of certain things. <laughs> One of them's really bizarre. <clears throat> and I, that. Yeah. Uh, around 2010, 11 maybe, someone came up with this idea of putting QR codes in stories in print that would take you to a digital experience off the print and whether it was to a video or a, an and we used to put lots of audio into online stories back in the day sort of podcasts before they were podcasts um <clears throat> but anyway this whole idea of QR codes and so this was this attempt to say hey we know people want this digital experience we don't quite know how to give it to them, but we'll take them there from an analog place to a digital mm. place. And in some ways, the thinking was quite ahead of its time because I use QR codes now in the print publication that, I, that I've got um, as a way of taking people to something that they can't get from print, i.e. a link to buy tickets to an event um, for signing up to an email newsletter out of the print thing. So it's a, I don't know, you might use the word sanitary kind of product. It's the thing, it's a useful stepping stone. Yeah, it just sort of accelerates yeah. the, you know, or, or reduces some barriers to entry. Yeah, but, you know. yeah. and that's this is 10 years later. Yeah. So it's like the idea was good and that was, but I can remember at the time as a print person thinking, what are we doing this for? Because it's all very resource intensive, right? Yeah, yeah. And there is, you're taking it from a medium where there is a very good kind of financial basis, the, the relationship between advertising yep. and uh, the content that wraps around it to a place where that is far less clear mm. and spending a lot of money and resource on it. Yeah. You know, it's, it is a, the, the sort of paths not taken back then must kind of Sit, sit, you know, yeah. sit prominent in the memory for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think back to an All Blacks tour I did, uh, so 2006 to Europe ahead of the 2007 World Cup, um, and audio was the thing. We had to tape everything we could, edit it. Like we all had, well, I had editing software, there for putting these 2006. audio. Yeah. Amazing. And sending it back in and it was getting put up on a website somewhere. But I have no idea. No one would have known what the traffic to that website was um, and who clicked on the audio and what use it was. But it was a just so difficult and so annoying as a <laughs> print person. You type in all your words and, oh, my God, now I have to edit this audio down to make it usable. Um, yeah. But again, it was a valiant attempt to go into that space and think about added value for one of another thing. Uh, what another word? Um, 
and it wasn't again they didn't have the vision for the final place they just knew that people were starting to play in this space and we have to give them something they can use or yeah but no one ever leveraged it didn't go anywhere I mean the numbers would probably have been tiny but again I think that it's it's easy to with hindsight kind of say that that was a, a misplaced use of resource but even the the skill of having live analytics and testing and learning and abandoning strategies is that is natural to and has grown out of technology but it's not something that's natural to newspaper people no you know? no i mean you 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 testing if you like your ab testing is um you couldn't have it in print you, you people either liked it or they didn't you couldn't give them another version you might have like a, like a, a like a the first edition or an a, an afternoon edition True. Kind of, you know you get you and you get a signal over time with this front page sold and this didn't yeah. trying to figure yeah. out how but it was very much a blunt instrument in some respects yeah well, at what point so do, talk about your your leaving and and why you left, you know, to what, to what extent it was a push or, or a pull of, of this this um, idea uh, of, of the pursuit of happiness? Well, um, when I think about what... Uh, so I ended up um, probably, not foolishly, because it was a really good experience, but I agreed to be the deputy editor at the Sunday Star That's Times, right. sort of 2011-ish, maybe, 20, late 2010, 2011, did that for about four years and uh, this was at the time of premium resource reduction um, and it was really hard like it was really really hard to we had such a small team um, it was quite hard to I don't know drive through that us and them thing between digital and print um, there were the newsroom was quite fractured Um and you know there was there were good people driving different things, um, and it was it was a difficult period. That's all I can say. Really, um, mm. we had some interesting management characters. Mitchell Murphy was a guy who came in from Australia. He was I don't know if you ever met him, but he was this incredibly larger than life Australian, and he was a disruptor. That's for sure. And he was the person who started what was briefly Auckland now. Um, and based off uh, something that had happened with Fairfax in Australia. Um, and I just think there was a period there where, right, we're going to go here into the digital space, um, but we're going to do it with what we've got here. And that means, as we've said, less resource for the print side of it. And then there was a constant, why isn't the print side of it any good? You know, why aren't you selling more papers? Um, that front page doesn't work. Um, can't believe you did that. Um, you know, it's uh, just slowly wears on you. Yeah, and uh, in the end, for me, in the end, I didn't fall out of love with newspapers. I fell out of love with working on Saturdays um, and then getting kind of beaten up on Tuesdays. <laughs> and, uh, and partly my own fault. I wasn't necessarily geared to be a, a newsroom leader. I don't think that was my thing. Um, and not that I ever was. I was always deputies and I don't know what deputies really sometimes and whether it's in politics or newsrooms um it just felt like you're always going around trying to make people work together a little bit better and (laughs) relate news from the top down and relate news from the bottom up or whatever you know um it was I, I enjoyed the role but I didn't enjoy that environment anymore um 
And I especially just didn't want to give my Saturday nights to it after, you know, it had been seven, no, ten years by the time I left, basically, of Saturday nights. Um, and it gets quite grinding. You don't have that social life that other people have. You always say no to doing things. And, um, yeah, there's only so long, I think. There's a, there is a lifespan and um, there's a little bit of a joke. It's not a joke because it's serious, but the number of uh, people who work in sport who have had uh, heart attacks in the my time of working in this media environment, they're invariably subs. And I think they, you know, it's just a stressful life. You work late, you don't eat well, you probably occasionally drink too much late at night, therefore don't sleep well. Yeah, old school media was was a bad environment. <laughs> yeah, notoriously so, yeah. Um, working on an important uh, object. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. So let's switch tack. Do, do, you, do you recall your first craft beer? Uh, yes and no. Um, as in I recall, I mean, if I want to really puff myself up, um, it was like drinking uh, Max Black and Max uh, Gold back in the early to mid-80s um, and thinking that this was different, you know, I'd been reared on uh, Lion Red, DB Draft, and then in Dunedin Spates. Um, And when I had Max for the first time, it was like, okay, this is different. But we didn't even have a word for craft beer then. Um, It's just different. It was just different. That wasn't long after the founding of Max, is that right? No, so it was 81 that it started. And... This was definitely, I can remember drinking it in sort of 84, 85 and it's definitely sort of the 87, 88 when I was living in Christchurch Um, and also drinking Harrington's beer um, sometime in that period. I can recall my brother um, who lived in Christchurch and I think I moved up there to take my job at the press and I think you could go to Harrington's and get, you know, rigor fills and it was just, oh, it's quite cheap and it's pretty boozy, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so, again, but we didn't have a word for it as craft beer. Um, but and so that's one aspect of it. And then when I lived in Australia, there was stuff like Cooper's Sparkling Ale, Little Creatures Pale Ale. And again, every time, you know, I, I was always looking for something new and something different. I can even remember been at the Atlanta Olympics and in the media room, uh, Beck's was the beer of choice, but I didn't pick the lager. They had a Beck's dark and 
that was my choice, you know, whether it was thinking back to the Black Max or whatever. But, um, you know, I was always interested in a, a, a new beer taste, a different beer taste, um, discovering stuff. Um, and it was only when I moved back to New Zealand sort of around 2005 and the experience that blew me away was Emerson's Pilsner. And uh, I can, you know, I still remember the moment. It was the Martinborough Hotel. It was Christmas Eve, I'm going to say 2006. It might have been 2007. And getting pints of Emerson's Pilsner and just literally going to my wife like, just wow, just taste this, taste it. It's amazing. And she thought it was so good she put away the Chardonnay and sort of started having a beer as well. And um, so that was the moment. That was the... Oh, okay, there is something going on here that is completely different to anything I've experienced. Even the Little Creatures Pale Ale, which back in 2003 or four blew me away to the same extent, but I didn't kind of have a, a word to describe it back then. You know, it was just, ah, oh, it's a beer you get in Fremantle or Perth when you're over there. Um, it, it, it wasn't, yeah... It wasn't craft, like, even then it wasn't craft, it was a micro. Yeah, um, right. You know, so, yeah, that was that was the moment. So, and it's interesting, right, because the the rise of craft beer in New Zealand almost perfectly matches the, the decline of, of <laughs> yeah. print. Um, and, what, you know, what, what, what prompted you to think, actually, there is a, there is a business here. There is a public. There, there is a gap here that I, mm. you know, feel well qualified well, to fill. I think I identified a gap before I identified a business, and that was uh, again Sunday Star Times, maybe late twenty ten. And when I said Mitchell Murphy was the the editor at one point, but he um, then moved to become a publisher or editor in chief, and a guy called David Kimmies came in as the editor. And David was, um, he's a very sophisticated, intelligent man. He knew art, he knew wine, but he was blue collar um, in his ethos. And he was a big rugby league fan, good friend of the Mad Butcher. And uh, I just had a sense from him that there was some possibility. So I just said, why don't we get rid of this wine column that we have in the escape section, which was the little magazine travel type thing and there was a wine column there and give me a beer column and uh and he just said good idea <laughs> and uh it was like really you sure and uh there's a I can still remember the first column I wrote and my god I had no idea what I was writing about I just knew that I wanted to explore this area and I'd kind of discovered epic pale ale at that point, and I was drinking some Croucher Pilsner, I think, both by those standards, very hoppy. And uh, so I started writing about beer, and I learned as I went along. And that Star Times column um, kind of put me in a space that n no one else was really in. There were people writing about beer. There was Jeff Griggs doing it uh, mainly for the Marlborough Express, um, he was based in Blenheim, and Jeff's like the kind of godfather of beer writing in New Zealand to an extent. Um, uh, he knew Michael 
Jackson, the beer writer, not Michael Jackson, the singer um, from his BBC days. Um, so Jeff was a bit of a guru, but he didn't have the, the Marlborough Express didn't have the audience that the Sunday Star Times did. Um, there was a guy, Neil Miller, uh, who died uh, last year, I think, um, unfortunately. And Neil was writing and blogging at a time when there weren't really blogs as such. And there were, there were a handful of other people doing it, but I was blessed to have this nationwide platform and, uh, you know, and lucky enough to have someone say, yeah, go on, go off and do that. And out of that came the book, uh, the first book I did called Beer Nation. And it was only when the book came along that it was like, okay, this is something I could do. And the book, you know, sort of helps establish you, gives you credibility it's like, oh, that guy wrote a book. He must know what he's talking about. <laughs> and even back then, like even now I say, I don't know. I'm still learning stuff, you know, um, 10, 12 years on. But back then I was literally learning as I went um, and making mistakes and getting things back the front, which I, I did a couple of times because there's so much um, arcane knowledge that's the, right. It's it's just a, it's this brand new sort of space that is is kind of being willed into existence. The yeah. the thing that I always that sort of hits me because I, I you know my grounding is as a music writer yes. and critic, and it always strikes me that the in some respects that that sort of like in indie indie music has been replaced by craft beer, or certainly it felt that <laughs> yeah. way for a period of time, and that yeah. you know, it, it has lots of these like labels and and you know the the particular beers are like bands and they're they're sort of followed in a similar cult way mm. by a similar kind of personality type but you know there was a sort of a history and an infrastructure there this this was being built out from scratch and it's quite different to sports in a lot of ways like it's a lot more organic in terms of the, these new things popping up and rising and falling you need a, to- a wholly different language yep. how did you find that that sort of transition as a as a writer um it's interesting to think back again to to how little I knew, and I think about sport. And you come into sport, um, and to an extent, music. It's filled your entire life up until that point. Like I was mad about sport from the age of five. Um, I just couldn't get enough of it. I was up watching All Blacks in the middle of the night with my father. Um, when we, we briefly lived in the States when I was like six or seven and I was hugely into baseball. I just loved baseball. Um, and I had all, you know, uh, all the heroes and uh, music's the same. Music comes at you maybe a little bit later, um, but it's with you through your adolescence, um, just as sporters. Alcohol and beer, they come to you later in life. And so you're discovering them as a kind of wide awake adult. Um, and so it's a different, you have to, go back and find all this stuff that in other areas it's been imbued in you already. That's right. Um, So you can, you know, like I think any good New Zealand uh, or any ordinary New Zealander could write you a few hundred words about an All Blacks test. They might not be perfectly grammatically correct. You know, the structure could change, but they could tell you what happened and do the old blow by blow like we used to do back in the the old, old days of sport where no one analysed anything. They just told you what happened. And someone could probably do that with music, explain why they like it, you know, and tell you a a history of a band or something like that. But yeah, so beer was, I actually, this is something, 
you know, that's immediately in craft beer, 40 years old maybe, in sort of modern terms, at least 150 years old, dating back to refrigeration and pasteurization and yeast, and then 500 years old when you go back to the first lagers being made in Germany, and then you discover it's actually 10,000 years old and that there's all these incredible geographic like rivulets that come to form this ocean that we have now of of beer and and so you know in, in some ways it's a bit like music and sport like there's different genres there's different sports um different countries do things in different ways different countries have different sports and different musical traditions and so the same with beer to an extent it, there are lots and lots of traditions and we have some in New Zealand, but not a lot. Um, but we do have our own unique, I don't know, beerosphere, if you like. <laughs> yeah, it feels so. that way, certainly. And I think you chronicle it very well. So just to tell me about kicking it off and, and, right. and why print yeah. and, and how the, you know, how, how it's sort of worked for you. Okay, so yeah, the um, so when I left Fairfax um, to freelance... I was mostly freelancing and in journalism areas and I did a couple more books, sort of the biography that I did with Steve Williams, the caddy, and then sort of I was arm twisted into writing a Lydia Ko uh, biography. Um, was this with participation or without? No, 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 no. Uh, okay. yeah. And they precisely wanted to do a, a an unauthorized biography. Um, I had to do a donut profile of her for Metro. <laughs> so I can I can <laughs> sympathise, but certainly not uh, yeah. to, to the extent that you must. Yeah, have yeah. It was there. it was literally a first draft of history. I mean, I enjoyed doing it, but yeah. it was by no means something that I would sit down and say I was incredibly proud of writing an unauthorized biography. The life of a freelancer. Yeah, yeah, gigs. yeah. Uh, and it's money, you know. Yeah. Um, so initially, I wasn't making money writing about beer. But in about 2015, I'd been freelancing about a year. And so the background to the Pursuit of Hoppiness magazine and website now is that it started as a newsletter for an organization called Sober, Society of Beer Advocates. And it was a great little local newsletter in Wellington. And it slowly gained some national traction, distributed free in bars and bottle stores. And in 2015, Sober came to me and said, would you like to edit this magazine? And it was like, absolutely, um, I'll jump all over it. And uh, it was it was an amateur uh, publication. And I mean, amateur, vo- totally volunteer-driven. Um, as an editor, I got some money. It wasn't a lot. But I immediately had this vision for it that it could be so much more than it was. And I took it through one redesign process and sort of took it a little bit more uh, upmarket and colourful and bright. And that was probably not the wisest thing to do because it costs money to do bespoke designs. But, you know, Sober believed in it. They believed in me. But it was still literally a one-man operation kind of answering to a committee. And, and it worked, We, you know, but it always just broke even, broke even, broke even. And there was a period where, you know, Sober decided and this is maybe four years ago, that they were probably subsidising it a little bit too much. Like it was costing them a few thousand dollars a year, like to pay me uh, to underwrite um, some of the freight and distribution and the design costs. You know, it, it, 
it didn't quite wash its face uh, in the in the parlance. And we tried to get more advertising, but we didn't really have anyone to sell advertising. Um, there was one person who did it, and she was great, but it needed someone to really just grab it and drive it um, from a business side of things. It's a classic small publication yeah. kind of dilemma, yeah. really. Yeah, and it couldn't keep surviving on a voluntary basis. And there was a part of me that didn't want to keep relying on voluntary contributions either. I wanted to pay people. And I thought journalists who wrote for it should be paid. And It's novel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so after, you know, discussions to and fro and what are we going to do about it? And it was literally sober sort of came to the realisation that for it to maybe realise its potential, it had to be freed from its current model. And also I think back then, to the credit of the people who were on the committee, they saw that themselves as an organisation had a limited lifespan. They were there to advocate for good beer. Good beer was kind of everywhere. The job was done a bit. Yeah, to an extent. And, and this year, Sober formally decided to fold. So there was a long-term vision that, hey, we have this really good product. We need to make sure it lasts longer than our organisation. We need to give it independence. You know, so the, the people who were in charge at that time, you know, they had the vision. And so it was sold to me uh, for a pint of beer at Galbraith's. And we signed all the documentation. And uh, so maybe 2019, I'm thinking, I took ownership of it. And that was when it became a business. Like I had to build a website for it. I had to find more advertising. I was paying people. I found, you know, uh, a new designer for it. Um, we templated it to an extent. Basically, I just stripped it right back to its, what's the bare minimum we can do to get this out right now, but without losing any of its verve or colour or importance, etc. And I think the thing that made it work was literally me going out to breweries and saying, hey, look, I've taken over the ownership of this magazine. It needs more advertising. Will you come on board? And, you know, so heaps of people came out of the... There were some really good existing advertisers and sponsors, you know, who have been there since I was editing it, like Batch Brewing, uh, Sunshine. I'll, I'll forget people if I try to rattle them off. But there was a a handful of brew shop, um, home brew supplies. But I, you know, went out to the people who weren't there, Garage Project, Parrot Dog, Emerson's, a whole bunch of other people that I sort of targeted as breweries that looked like they could afford it. (laughs) For one of, you know. um, sales. Yeah. And so, you know, it was almost not do me a favour, but it's like, hey, this is a really good publication and, and it clearly, yeah, I mean, that, that's always the, the, the sort of, there's a tragedy of the commons sometimes happens with publications where there is a an ecosystem of, a, of mm. you know, to use a word that people don't like, mm. um, that that sort of it, everyone benefits from the existence of the thing, but if they, if they don't support it, it, it caves in on itself and then it sort of loses that centralising yep. force. And you've seen that in so many sectors. Um over the years, but it's craft beer 
does feel like it's a it's a big community even yeah. uh, still. It's also incumbent on you to be a, a critic as well as a champion when you with a, for a publication with integrity and communities, particularly that are those that are as close knit can be kind of easily wounded. Uh, how have how has sort of that aspect of it gone? That that sort of natural tension that exists, um, particularly with a, a publication like this. Yeah, that's um, it is a really good point. I guess you could put it this way: there's more than enough positive news to fill a magazine without. But it doesn't mean you avoid stuff that's that's negative to an extent. Um, but one thing that we did um, that I made a decision to do uh, maybe a couple of years ago was to stop reviewing beer per se because we could only review, um, I think, maybe eight, 12, 16, you know, in terms of little potted reviews. And it's like, man, when there's a thousand or more beers made a year when, you know, um, Garage Project alone makes 70. We couldn't review all the beers from one brewery, let alone all the beers made in New Zealand. And by default, we were erring towards just reviewing what was really good. And Mm. to, hey, this is better than your average example of this style of beer. We think you should try it. And someone did kind of call us out on that and so why is everything so relentlessly positive and it's like well there's only limited space it only comes out six times a year Um, we only do this many reviews why would we pick out just one person to say their beer is horrible Um, and there's there's a natural tension right like are you a consumer reports kind of thing like here's a guide to buying good beer yeah or are you a, a critic that that is uh, trying to sort of survey the field and tell you what's good and bad about it, and you know, I think that you know, the, you, you just have to pick a lane there, really. Yeah, and and the lane I've picked for now, and it doesn't mean it'll always be this way, is let's celebrate what's actually really good. Let's look at trends, and especially, I think the underlying thing that I always want to do, and I think it applies in any form of journalism, is bring people into it. Like the most recent edition, uh, there's a profile of a small brewery in Glen Orkey. There's, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, uh, workshop in Raglan. Like talking to those people who are doing this kind of work um, that might not get recognition normally. And it's like, there are stories here. There are some really cool stories happening all over the place. You know, um, it's not all about you know, the latest release from a garage project or a parrot dog or, an, you know, whatever. But then when stuff happens, like Epic goes into liquidation, well, you have to be all over that at the same time. But again, it's it's about trying to identify in anything you do in journalism, what are people interested in? What do they want to read about? You know, what what's going to inform them, entertain them, just make them a bit happier, you know? Like it's a... And beer is just a mechanism for telling more stories. Um, it's also a great mechanism for having opinions. <laughs> so it's, a, you know, it's a, I don't know, it's it's different to a music magazine where you might pan an album from somebody, especially on a global scale. You could say what you like about Britney Spears or whatever and she's never going to read it, whereas this is a really well-read magazine in a small community, so... Um, 
Yeah, you, you have know. to be, be be kind of a, more aware of your what your contribution to yeah uh, that yeah. that community is. And uh, you know, also this is a big chunk of my livelihood now. And I think when you you're an owner, publisher, editor, writer, <laughs> advertising, sales rep, um, you know, you, I don't think you can afford not to try and make it no it naturally comes in your image I think and to an extent I am quite upbeat and positive and I don't like dwelling on negative stuff too much and I don't like you know one thing I hated about general news journalism was that whole having to do I guess the negative stories the prying into people's lives all that kind of stuff like and sport was good for me. Sport was always invariably upbeat and positive, you know, it's, um, except when you covered the black caps in the <laughs> 90s. Um, <laughs> that was a terrible period. Um, but, you know, like, uh, yeah, when it's – and it's my life as much as anything. And so it's – I don't know. I hope it's a reflection of kind of who I am and what I think and almost what I believe in. And I believe in the beer industry and I believe in the people in it and I think it's really cool and – so the default is towards sort of celebration without avoiding the sticky stuff when it comes up. Yeah. Well, I, I think it achieves all that incredibly well. And, uh, yeah, I just anyone who's listening who likes likes craft beer, you could, you know, strongly recommend subscribing to, at the very least, the Substack. And uh, yeah. and if you like that, the, go, go the full hog and get the, um, well, the, if, the print publication. If you subscribe to the Substack, uh, you get the magazine home delivered. So, yeah. It's, it's a pretty argue. good deal. I think it's a crazy deal, to be <laughs> yeah. honest. Especially because it's very easy to spend fifty dollars a year on bad craft beer, which you you know you got a very yeah. good chance of avoiding uh, if you're reading this. Hey, thanks so much for coming up, Michael. I've really uh, enjoyed uh, reconnecting and, and yeah, yeah. talking through uh, the evolution of your career. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you, Duncan. It's been a real pleasure. I can't believe that time's just flowing. <laughs> That's uh-huh. what talking about beer does. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right. Thank you. Thanks. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e te iwi, Kia Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.